Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer today. Lord, we rejoice in the gospel message, and we thank you so much for uh, just the uh, hope that you give to us uh, in Christ, and we thank you for the hope of the gospel that we as sinful people can be made right with you. Lord, this is a mercy that you have not even extended to the fallen angels. You have extended this to us, and so we are humbled. We pray that you might help us to be characterized more and more by this love that redeemed us, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, we have been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for a number of weeks now, and really seeking to understand what biblical love looks like. We are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been working our way through the entire book, and we recently have landed in 1 Corinthians 13 and kind of put it in low gear, so to speak, and just slowly kind of working our way through what are these attributes of love, what does love look like from a biblical perspective, and what are we called to do uh, as we seek to love others. And because it's been a few weeks since I've done this, I would like to briefly remind us here at the outset what our definition of love is so that we kind of have our bearings here. Love is something that is uh, remarkably difficult to define given the fact that it is such an elementary concept and something that uh, ought to characterize all of us. And uh, there are a number of reasons why understanding love is important. And we could go on for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is that a proper understanding of love prevents us and protects us from simply adopting whatever the world says love is. The world tends to view love almost exclusively in terms of emotion. Uh, This is not across the board, but in large part. The world's idea of love is very transitory, very shallow, It is fleeting. It's a vapor. There's no commitment involved. There's no sacrifice involved. You can fall out of love just as easily as you can fall in love. Love is something that happens to you when you least expect it, and all of a sudden you just fall into it. This is one of the predominant ways that the world views love today. On the other hand, there are some who would say, and and this... uh, maybe has characterized us for the last few generations at least, we have had a tendency in, uh, to, to, define loves, uh, to, to define love exclusively in terms of raw commitment. Um, one pastor defines love this way and says, it is not a feeling but a determined act of will. And so there exists a tension of sorts, and this really is a bit of a predicament. Should we understand love to be uh, a feeling or an emotion... Or should we understand love to be commitment and sacrifice? And there's kind of this tension that goes on as we discuss this topic. And I would answer that question and simply say, why not both? This is how Jonathan Edwards defined it. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, the affections are no other than the more rigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul. Now, in case that sentence from Jonathan Edwards has become a little rusty in the last 250 years since he penned it, let me explain what he's saying here. Edwards is saying that your desires 
are intertwined and connected with your will, and those together make up love. He goes on to say this. He says, the will and the affections of the soul are not two faculties. The affections are not essentially distinct from the will. Okay? What is Jonathan Edwards saying? He's saying it's both. There is the affection and the delight and the emotion in love. And then he's saying there also is this act of will, this commitment, this, this determination. And he's saying it encompasses both of these realities. Love is a determination of the will. It is commitment. If it were not, then every married couple ought to get a divorce the first time they ever have an argument because there's no commitment involved, okay? But there is commitment involved, okay? Love says this, even though I don't feel like liking you right now, I will anyway. Even though I don't feel like loving you right now, I will anyway, there is a determination. There is a uh, stick to itness of sorts. There is a commitment of the will. Love is rigorous. It is steadfast. It is enduring. It is stable. It is reliable. And love ought to, in your marriage and in your family, have a stabilizing effect so that things are not chaotic in your home, but that things are stable in your home. If love was not this, if love was not a determination of the will, how could God love us? What is there in us that is lovely? So love must be commitment. On the other hand, love is also affection. It is delight. It is emotion. How else can you explain 1 Peter 2 or 1.22 that says this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart? There is a affection in here. There is a delight in here. There, there is a joy in this. Have affection toward one another. Let your love come from a pure heart. Let it be earnest. So our definition of love uh, throughout this chapter, uh, we've actually stolen it from, from Edwards. And we said that love is the inclination and will of the soul. It takes into consideration both aspects. So that loving your brother does not merely mean that you endure your brother, although you do endure your brother, but it doesn't mean merely that, <clears throat> but that you are actually more than that, you are inclined toward your brother. Your good deeds toward your brother come out of this desire, out of this delight, out of this affection. And that is what we said the definition of love was, that it takes into consideration both of these aspects. And so with that brief review in mind, we come to our text, which is simply one verse, verse 7 of chapter 13, and we're going to read this. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7 says, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And we will, as we have been doing with this series in 1 Corinthians 13, we will look at each of these as kind of one point. Uh, the first point will be that love bears all things, then believes, then hopes, then endures all things. And so let's look at these each in turn. Love bears all things. The Greek word here that is translated as bears uh, is a word that also means to endure. Love does endure all things. And so as we said a moment ago, yes, you do endure your brother. You bear up with your brother. 
to say that love endures all things. When we're talking about this attribute of love bearing all things or enduring all things, it is to say that love has strong and broad shoulders. Love is, we might say, equipped to carry heavy loads. One Greek lexicon defines the word this way, to bear up against difficulties, to bear or to stand or to endure. Another lexicon uh, defines the word to put up with annoyance or difficulty. John MacArthur defines it this way, stego, which is the word here, to bear, basically means to cover or to support and therefore to protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure, ridicule, or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when a sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin, but is anxious to protect the sinner. Now, we have a tendency to think of these loads. If we're talking about love bears all things, we are talking about it in terms of these broad shoulders and love bears heavy loads, okay? People can uh, say mean things against me. They can do mean things against me, and yet I am going to continue to allow that to kind of pile up, and I'm bearing this load. I'm carrying this weight. We have a tendency to think of this weight today in rather minor terms, and It certainly is true that love does uh, endure or bear the minor things. Love does put up with annoyances, okay? So love endures uh, your neighbor who will not stop talking, okay? And you're trying to dash into your garage, your driveway, and get in your house before they see you because they're going to talk your ear off for an hour, okay? Love endures that kind of a thing, okay? Love endures or bears the person in front of you driving slow in the fast lane, okay? Love endures your child when they spill milk all over the floor, okay? Love endures the weaknesses of others. Love endures your spouse's idiosyncrasies, okay? The things that you thought were, I don't know, when you were dating were really cute and now they're really annoying, okay? Love endures those kinds of little things, all right? But love also endures the larger and more significant injustices that are done against us. Love endures persecution, whatever that looks like. Love turns the other cheek. Love endures injustice against me. Love endures being let go from your job. Love endures all of these things, and we can add to the list. The idea here with this attribute of love is that you continue to show love to others even when they are in the midst of piling heavy loads on top of you, even when they are continuing to sin against you. You are continuing to endure and to bear with this. Um, many of us probably can relate to the, the, the child. The child has all kinds of needs. Diaper needs to be changed, needs to be dressed, needs to be fed, he needs to have all these things, and you kind of bear with this. <laughs> I would rather go do this, but this is what I'm bearing up with. And every time this child of yours puts in a request for something, by crying, it's as if another weight was placed on your shoulders. And no matter how heavy that load gets, you continue to bear up under it. You continue to love that child. It's it's not just this idea of bearing up under this weight is not just, all right, if I have to, I have to. It's 
I'm going to continue to love you while you are doing this to me. And that's the, the gist of what this is uh, communicating. Or if you happen to know someone who is always insulting you or is rude to you, uh, you don't have a short fuse, okay? You bear up under this load and you continue to love them. You have strong shoulders. Now, I do want to pause here for just a moment and just take a minute or two here to wrestle with something. And I want to draw our attention to one word in this statement, and that is the word all, okay? This word accompanies every attribute of love in our text today, okay? Love bears all, not some things. Love believes all, not some things. Love hopes all, not some things. And hope endures all, not some things. Now, as I was preparing uh, for this message, I was wrestling with this a lot. Uh, And perhaps you are wrestling with this right now. Does he mean all in a literal sense, every last possible thing? Or are there limitations, caveats, exceptions? The word bear or the word endure in this verse appears in the New Testament four times. Every occurrence of this word is used by Paul. And in two of these occurrences, Paul, who also wrote this, identified something that he could not bear with. Okay? So I want to read these to you. Both of them are in 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, By the way, the context here is that Paul is concerned with the Thessalonians. And he is afraid that because they have been tested, they have abandoned the faith. And so finally, after he can wait no longer, he sends Timothy to check on their status. Are you guys okay? Or have you kind of shipwrecked your faith? And so this is the context. In 1 Thessalonians 3.1, the word bear in here is the same Greek word as in our verse. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer. Okay, and then in verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that the tempter attempted you and our labor would be in vain. So the context here is that Paul is concerned for the Thessalonians. He's afraid they have abandoned their faith. He sends Timothy, and he says, I sent Timothy to you because I could bear it no longer. And so the question then we have to ask ourselves is, what is the relationship between these two passages? Paul says love bears all things, and then he says in 1 Thessalonians, I couldn't bear this. What is he meaning? I'm going to read to you um, a quote here from MacArthur uh, that I think is mostly good, and I'll have some minor qualms with it, but he says this. He says, the four qualities, that is, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, are hyperbole, exaggerations to make a point. Paul has made it clear that love rejects jealousy, bragging, arrogance, unseemliness, unselfishness, anger, resentment, and unrighteousness. It does not bear, believe, hope, or endure lies, false teaching, or anything else that is not of God. So in other words, if someone begins to attack your wife, you don't simply step back and say, well, love bears all things, so have at it. (laughs) It's, It's not 
what the text is communicating to us. This verse cannot be taken to mean that love is passive, or that love is docile, or that love is indifferent, or that love is compliant in every situation. Now, again, I'm going to let you know that I think there's a little bit of tension here, and I do want to give one warning. And while I, I do find myself, I think, agreeing with what MacArthur is saying here, I don't think I really like his choice of words, but I don't really know maybe what the best way to express this is because we don't want to just point to any verse in the Bible and say, well, that's just exaggeration, right? We, we can neutralize any text of Scripture this way. Um, so, so the danger is that you would take this phrase and say, well, uh, this is an exaggeration. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I have to bear that. <laughs> and certainly it doesn't mean that I have to bear that. And I don't have to put up with this and I don't have to endure that. If you're doing that, then you're taking the teeth out of the text. Okay? Love bears all things. It may be best to look at the example of Christ. What did Christ do? He endured the shame and the abuse of the cross. He, he endured that, but he also took a whip to those selling the temple. Love bears all things, and yet at the same time is not passive and indifferent. Maybe this is helpful. If you are erring in this area, it is likely that you are not bearing enough rather than bearing too much. <laughs> That's number one. Here's number two. Love believes all things. Now, once again, you're probably asking yourself the question, does this mean I believe everything? Matthew 24, 24 to 26, Jesus says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is here in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the rooms, in the rooms, do not believe it. Okay? So now we have to put these together because we believe that Scripture is harmonious, that it is in unity with one another. Paul says, love believes all things. And then we have this passage here where Jesus says, if they say this to you, don't believe that. So how do these things fit together? Well, c consider another example here. Um, how do you believe two contradictory facts at the same time? If I'm doing counseling between two individuals and I find myself in a he said, she said situation, does believe all things mean that I'm supposed to believe both? I, I can't believe both without being contradictory. Uh, the culture, by the way, tells us to believe all women. Is that what we're talking about here in this particular context? Well, what he is doing is Paul is exhorting us specifically uh, not to, to be uh, naive or gullible. And I want to read to you Proverbs 14, 15 through 6. Okay, keep, keep this in mind. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things, okay? Proverbs 14, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious, 
and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Okay, do you, do you see the, the tension here now? 1 Corinthians 13, 7, believe all things. Proverbs 14, only the fool believes everything. So how are we? Now, one of the common ways of dealing with something like this in our current culture is to say, oh, that's just the Apostle Paul. And certainly anyone who takes seriously the inspiration of Scripture cannot say that because we know that God has inspired all Scripture. And so how do we bring these together? We believe that both passages are true, but they are not true in the same exact sense. Proverbs 14 is warning us against the folly of a gullible spirit. Okay, someone who just, oh, okay, oh, okay, oh, I believe that, okay. Only a fool believes everything you tell him. He has no discernment, no wisdom. 1 Corinthians 13 is addressing something else. Love here, what, what, is, what is what he's getting at here? In Proverbs 14, he's getting at the foolish, gullible person who believes anything. In 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying, love gives the benefit of the doubt. In other words, you don't instantly believe the evil report on the first time that you hear it every time, okay? You say, well, let me hear, let the facts come out first before I make a judgment in this case. We might say innocent until proven guilty. So if someone you know is accused of wrongdoing, you don't respond with sinful glee and say, I knew it. I knew they would do something like this. If someone you know is, or even someone you don't know is accused of wrongdoing, you give the benefit of the doubt and you wait and, until you hear all of the facts, okay? You don't rush to judgment, okay? A great example of where this is done with perfection is on social media, right? They always wait on social media to hear all the facts before rushing to any judgment, okay? That's sarcasm, okay? <laughs> We're to be the opposite of that. We are to wait. We are to hear all the facts. We are to not rush to judgment. We don't jump to conclusions, we might say. John MacArthur says, hatred believes the worst and love believes the best. And again, uh, we're not saying that we never have to believe the worst. It's just we wait until there's a good reason to believe that. There's an interesting statement that uh, those of you who, um, this is probably going on two years ago now, where we went through the book The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, he, he quoted a minister by the name of Robert Trail, and we were talking about the um, legalist and antinomian debate going on and um, all those things. And um, Robert Trail, Ferguson brought this to, to our attention. He says, let us not receive reports suddenly of one another. Okay, so someone suddenly gives a bad report and, and you receive it or believe it immediately. In times of contention, many false reports are raised and rashly believed. Does that sound familiar? Anyone ever heard of a false report raised and people rashly believe it? Anyone? This is both the fruit and the fuel of contention. For all the noise of antinomianism, I must declare that I do not know any one antinomian minister or Christian in London who is really such as the reproachers paint them out or as Luther and Calvin really wrote against. Okay? What he's saying 
He's not taking the side of the antinomians. He's just saying, let's at least paint them fairly. (laughs) Okay, this is actually a principle for us to take on ourselves. And that is, for all of our opponents that we have, whether this is an ideological opponent or whatever it might be, someone across the the political aisle or someone with uh, another particular doctrine, you can still... Preach the truth, okay? But here's what, here's what he's saying. Just represent them fairly. Don't, don't paint a false picture of your uh, opponents. Again, he's not saying, oh, who cares about false teaching? Well, they believe this, they believe that, it doesn't matter. No, he's saying, let's just paint our opponents in a fair light. Let's not, and we have a tendency, right? If someone on our side, so to speak, paints this person in the worst possible light, what do we do? We rashly believe it. Has anyone ever done this? Anyone? Okay, like two of you. We've all done this. Um, We need to be, love believes, wait a second, hold on, benefit of the doubt. We have a tendency to paint our opponents as the worst individuals on planet Earth. Love, on the other hand, is not so careless. Love gives a fair representation of all parties involved. This goes for political opponents. This goes for husband-wife relationship. This goes for uh, sibling-sibling relationship. This goes for all the relationships that we paint them in a fair light. That's the second one. Um, Here's the third one. Love hopes all things. Uh, I've had a handful of MacArthur quotes here, so I'm sorry about that, but... This is a really good one. He says, as long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. Um, Love does not give up hope and say, oh, he will never be saved. (laughs) Give up on that person. If you do that, by the way, you you are revealing a prior theological commitment that you have whether you realize this or not. If you say, yeah, I'm done. God could never save this person. God could, th- this person will never trust in Christ. They're too far gone. If you say that, here's what the theological commitment is that you are admitting to. That you believe man is stronger than God. As long as God, as long as this person is still living... Okay, God can bring that person to salvation, even in their last dying breath. God can save the most corrupt individual in their last dying breath. Nobody is beyond God's grace. There's a true story of a dog named Hachiko. Anyone ever heard the story of Hachiko and the dog? A few of you have, okay. It it was a, a dog in Japan, and he followed his master to the train station as his master got on the train to go to work, and he did this every single day. And when his master would come back from work around 3 o'clock, the dog would show up at the train station, and he would walk with his master back home. And one day, the master died from a brain hemorrhage while he was teaching. So he got on the train, went to work, he died at work, and never returned. And the dog showed up at the train station as usual, but no master. Hachiko, the dog, 
then proceeded to walk to the train station every single day from 1925 until 1935, until the dog died. For 10 years, every day, the dog walked to the train station, holding out hope that his master would one day return. Now, there is a difference between the brand of hope that this dog had, okay, whatever, however you want to describe the emotions of a dog, we can have that conversation another time, but whatever was going on in this dog's mind, he had at best blind optimism. It was totally blind. It was, it was a shot in the dark. Our hope as Christians is of another variety entirely. We have a confident assurance or a confident expectation in the Lord. We have so much more as believers in Christ. Our salvation, we hope in our salvation. Not in that sense, I hope one day. I hope. We have a confident expectation that this is how God's economy operates, that all who repent and believe are saved and eternally secure. And there's no questioning of that. This does not mean, by the way, that every last thing that we hope for, I, I hope that I get ice cream today, <laughs> that every last hope that we have will come true. But it does mean that we can look to God for our strength and our confidence. To every parent of a wandering child, to every individual with an unbelieving spouse, God is enough. And God can still change that person. God can bring that wandering, erring child back. Now, just like the other attributes, it seems best to not understand this in the sense that you hope in literally anything... And I want to give you 1 Timothy 6.17 as an example of this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Okay? Don't hope in your riches. Okay? The admonition here is that you hope in God, not in your wealth. Is this not, though, what we've been getting at all along? That if you have an unbelieving spouse, your hope is not in that spouse, but in God to rescue them. That, that, that if you have someone who is lost or erring, your hope is in God, not in that person. And that's what we've been getting at all along. Our hope as believers is ultimately in the Lord. And there is stability there and endurance there. God is the one who can change them. That's number three. Here's number four. Love endures all things. This word has a similar meaning to the first one we looked at, namely that love bears all things. In fact, when I said that love bears all things, I said one of the Greek translations of this is love endures all things. And so you could say that love endures all things there, and then love endures all things here. It is a synonym. Love bears all things and it endures all things. But they are two different Greek words, and they are very close in meaning, but they're not completely identical. Both are closely related to the idea of patience. Love patiently bears all things. Love patiently endures all things. One commentator expresses the difference between these two words by saying that the first one, love bears all things, has to do with bearing up under a load of unlimited weight. You can continue to pile the weight on and pile the weight on and I will endure Um, And to say that love endures all things 
has to do with bearing up under a load of unlimited duration, of time. It can continue on and on and on and on and on. This may be best understood then by the difference between lifting weights and running a marathon, okay? To bear all things is to be able to lift heavy weights. And to endure all things is to keep running for a very, very long time and to run and to run and to run and run. Endurance, okay? Um, This is made clear, I think, by one lexicon who defines this word endure as to stay in a place beyond an expected point of time, okay? Endurance has to do with a long time. Bearing has to do with a lot of weight, What we would say then about this is that the attribute of patience, patience has different muscles. And you could be really good at lifting weights, but not good at running marathons. You could be really good at running marathons, but not good at lifting weights. You could be really good at both, or you could be really good at neither of those two things. And this is what these two attributes are talking about. Love is, we might say, well-rounded. It it is good at both things. Love can lift the weights. It can bear up under that provocation. It can bear up under people falsely accusing you and so on and so forth. That weight, no matter how heavy it gets. Love also can endure for a long time. So that if that person is continuing to do this to you, for weeks and months and years, you continue to bear up under this and endure, as it says here. Now, once again, uh, because you're so interested in this, what I we always want to know what the limits are in everything, right? And uh, I think the way that we understand the limits is not by our own intuition, but what is the, how does the Bible define this attribute in a well-rounded way? So, I'm supposed to endure all things. What is a, we might say, a theology of endurance in the Bible? And so here's just one additional verse. First uh, Peter 2 and verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Okay, so Peter's saying, look, Endurance is going to do you no good if you're enduring because you're sinning. If you're a thief and you are enduring the punishment that you receive, what value is that to you? The endurance counts when you are being mistreated. When someone is persecuting you, when someone is abusing you in some way, and you are enduring in that scenario, then he says, okay, that's what counts in that situation. And, of course, the word endure in 1 Peter 2.20 is the same Greek word as in our text. Endurance, then, must be for the right reasons and the right motivations. All right, so where does all of this kind of take us, and how do we kind of land the plane here? Um, I will concede to you that preparing for and preaching this message was a bit harder than I had anticipated. And my biggest fear here, this is kind of being honest about as I, I'm taking I'm taking you into I'm taking you into the wood shop, so to speak, okay? I'm showing you not the finished product of the sermon, but kind of as this has been 
worked on. My, my biggest fear in preaching through this passage is that we would read a text like this and we would say, love believes all things. Well, it doesn't believe all things. And then we would walk away and say, well, it doesn't matter then how I live. It's, it's, that would be the opposite of what the text is saying and what my goal would be today. That is not what the passage is saying. If anything, the text should jolt us into alignment and force us to recognize, I haven't been patient enough. I, I don't bear all things. I, I don't believe all things. I don't hope all things. I don't endure all things. We all would, I think, concede that we need to grow in significant ways in these areas. Love is committed to bearing up under pressure. Love is committed to enduring it is committed to giving the benefit of the doubts. It is dedicated to keeping faith, to keeping hope, and it is committed to enduring for very long periods of time. What does this remind us of except the way that Christ acted towards us in the gospel? Is this not how Christ acted? Is this not a glimpse of the gospel right here in these four attributes of love? There's an old story that goes like this. During Oliver Cromwell's reign as Lord Protector of England, a young soldier was sentenced to die. The girl to whom he was engaged pleaded with Cromwell to spare the life of her beloved, but to no avail. The young man was to be executed when the curfew bell sounded. But when the sexton repeatedly pulled the rope, the bell made no sound. The girl had climbed into the belfry and wrapped herself around the clapper so that it could not strike the bell. Her body was smashed and bruised, but she did not let go until the clapper stopped swinging. She managed to climb down, bruised and bleeding, to meet those awaiting the execution. When she had explained what she had done, Cromwell commuted the sentence. A poet beautifully recorded the story as follows. At his feet, she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew will not ring tonight. This is what love looks like. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. And love says, I'm willing to go through this first and foremost because Christ went through far more for me. Christ, Christ, that lady wrapping herself up did not even come close to what Christ has done. We are called to do far less than what, I mean, how, how many of us have ever had to be crucified for the sins of the whole world, okay? Love bears all things. Love endures all things. It is tempting for us to put our pride in the driver's seat. It is tempting for us to put our selfishness and our desires in the driver's seat. And just, in fact, that's the, that is your default position, when you come into this world, the, the default operating system that you come pre-programmed with 
is selfishness. This is what the fall did to us. You are here, you come into this world, and your goal is to look out for number one. That's your goal. We fight vestiges of this until we die. And it is easy to put that selfishness and that default OS into the driver's seat and let it just run the ship. But that is not what we are called to do as Christians. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. This is who we are as Christians. This is what we do as Christians. We love. And this is what love looks like, according to this passage. I have a couple points of application here for us today. Uh, as we conclude, the first point is this, uh, and all of these are related to each of the four um, attributes of love. The first one is broaden your shoulders in order to bear up under heavy loads. Um, we probably, I'm, I'm just going to take a guess, this is probably a muscle that all of us need to develop a little bit more than we've developed up till this point. Um, a heavy load for us is that um, the fast food drive-through took three minutes instead of two minutes and thirty seconds. There's there are people who get really mad about that. Okay, <laughs> hopefully none of us are those people. Okay, but but th- these are the kinds of tr- trials that we struggle with today. Okay, we need to develop this muscle. The second point of application is give others the benefit of the doubt, refusing to immediately believe the worst. Okay? Um, we, just, we just simply are not rushing to judgment in situations. We simply are saying, let's hear, all the, let's hear the facts. Let's understand what's going on here. That's the second one. Third one is uh, never... Permit your hope to die out, realizing that God's grace is always sufficient. Okay? Um, Our hope is ultimately in the Lord, and he is good, and he is kind, and he is enough. Last one is develop the Christian muscle of endurance. And that is different, of course, than number one, but this is carrying a heavy load for a long time. And this muscle needs to be developed as well. Now, I just want to maybe say one more thing here, and that is you might respond to these applications and say this, but my tank is empty. <laughs> my, all my reserves are depleted, and I don't know that I have any strength left in myself to carry out these applications. And I have good news for you, um, because the reality is, yes, all of our reserves are depleted. Um, in fact, the, the bigger problem here today is the person who thinks, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. If, that, if, that, if that's your disposition here, then I think I have a bigger exhortation for you <laughs> than, than for the other person, because you can't do this. Um, if you lift yourself up by your bootstraps and try to accomplish this, you are embracing the error of legalism, and you are thinking, I can make myself clean on my own. 
is this not what the whole purpose of the gospel was <laughs> to say that you couldn't do this? And so sometimes we have to give the exhortation that Paul gave in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Do you remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3? He said, you guys started off the right way by faith alone, and now you've gone off into the weeds and think that you can do this yourself. And he rebukes them for this. And so what I would remind us is that the same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us and gives us the ability to respond in obedience to these particular attributes of love. The answer is found in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. This is it. So how can I love better? Go to the source of that love, and that is Christ. We, we might say run to Christ. Look to him. The answer here is to soak in the glory of the gospel and soak in the love of Christ, and you will be equipped to go and do likewise. His grace is sufficient for us. Thank you, God, again for today and this time that we could be here. And we thank you for your word and its sufficiency. Help us to do what you've called us to do, and that is to love others for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and that you would equip us to do that. We know that this strength comes not from within, but from without. And we pray that you'd help us to depend on you through rigorous prayer, through rigorous Bible study, through looking to one another, even in our own church, for counsel and accountability and all those kinds of things because we recognize our own insufficiency in these areas. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.